Hey guys, welcome to Urban Engine Podcast number 22. I'm Matt McClellan and I'm here joined with Brandon Cruz and Tony Eberhardt this morning. Hey. Hi. We are excited this afternoon. First of all, Brandon, thank you for like taking away from almost starting a vacation and then me coercing you to come back to not quite start your vacation yet and joining us today. Uh, no problem. I'm really bad at vacation. So literally as soon as you call me, I'm like, I'm on my way. Yeah. <laughs> I, I will be there in 20 minutes. Yeah. No, I mean, it was one of those things where, you know, usually you would let somebody know way ahead of time, but Brandon and I don't operate like that. I just call him 10 minutes before and like, Hey man, can you come join me? So <laughs> thanks for coming out. I appreciate it. Um, we wanted to talk about something today that I think I see a lot of different, uh, business owners that are new maybe, or, or looking for a n- new opportunity, maybe outside of what they currently do. Um, and looking at a business and thinking that this is a sure thing. Um, and there's a lot of different ways you can you can kind of view this. But uh, what I want to talk about is that, there one, there is no sure thing. Nope. And that there's so many opportunities out there that look great on paper. And, you know, maybe they really are just fantastic business opportunities. But there's so much more that goes on behind closed doors of a, of a functioning, successful business than just what you see on paper, right? Yeah, especially what you see just walking into it you know i think this i see this happen a lot in the retail business like you had mentioned gyms before like oh i go to this gym and it's a lot of people there really successful um i'm not sure how they set their pricing but i'm going to open up a gym i'm going to rent a space uh i'm going to set my pricing lower so i can get all the business uh, and hope for the best and it's just so difficult to see what actually causes that output you know the output what you see when you walk into the gym is the very last step of the puzzle right like how was the equipment financed how did they drive the people there driving people to an action is incredibly difficult a lot of people think i i talking through this i think a lot of people think that the equipment and the location is kind of the hard part i mean all you need to do is sign a lease and buy some equipment to get that done right That's it, man. getting people into the gym is the hard part yeah and and, and i think that goes you know that goes with any business. Like, let's talk about, you know, one of your business, for example, Comet Sold. All you did was write yeah. an app, and suddenly you had 10,000 boutiques on there, right? Yeah, yeah exactly. They were, yeah. They just, Overnight. They just flocked to you. Yeah, you know? it was like the longest. Found it on the app store. Found it on the app store. Yeah, and that's actually kind of funny. We have some customers that say, like, don't publish my app yet. I'm not ready. I'm like, no one, like, just finds it and just starts buying stuff, right? Mm-hmm. Like, that is what every retailer dreams of, and it doesn't actually happen. Uh, no one just comes to your website and just buys products. It takes really intentional effort to drive that traffic but no it was like a, i always say it was like the longest four years of my life um <laughs> getting comments sold to this point and it definitely wasn't an accident but we hear that a lot like oh it's just a program i can write a program to read comments from facebook it's like oh, okay yeah you should do that you know because it sucks now take a couple million people and make them go buy things through it yeah right? really hard yeah and, and and it's just one of those things again so let's talk about what that looks like on paper like we're presented with a business opportunity you know maybe this is something locally that um, you've got a friend that is in this business trying to get you to be a part of it because the yeah. opportunity is perfect timing, man. Things are going great. Look at the money I'm making on this thing. But then what's the next step? Like, how do you vet that and realize that this is, you know, all that glitters ain't gold, basically? Yeah, I think vetting those opportunities is super difficult because uh, if you're talking to another entrepreneur, we're really, really bad in general. And I'm going to, like, classify the whole entrepreneur ecosystem of being optimistic for the most part, right? Uh, sometimes when people ask me how things are going and I just, I just like knee jerk, always say they're going great, even though there could be like a huge fire that I'm battling right at that moment. You know, it's just like, it's almost like we're trying to talk ourselves out of it. Right. Oh, things are, yeah, it's good. All thumbs up. And you really don't have any other option, right? Because you need to be positive minded for your own 
well-being because if it's Sanity. not going well, I mean, you have to pretend. And, I, and that uh, Brandon, I side with you there because so many times over the years, if someone at me like, how are things going? Things are going good. And I'm like, no, they're not. Yeah. No, they're it's not. It's horrible. Like, but what am I going to do? Tell you like, no, they're terrible, man. It's actually really hard. You want to hear about all my problems real quick? Right. Yeah. No <laughs> one really wants to know. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, you know, actually, Brandon asked me that question you know, right before this podcast, and I said, good, really good. And he goes, oh, really good. And so he knew that, like, I wasn't just bullshitting. Yeah, him. that's a distinction. Like, that's a big yeah. distinction. No, yeah. that, was, that was actually things are going well right now for yeah. Matt, you know. And, uh, yeah, I, I think that you are kind of tuned into doing that. But so we look at this opportunity. It, it looks like it's viable on paper. We're going to make money or we're going to affect change in this business opportunity that somebody's presented to us or that this company is put out there, right? But then – how do we know if it's really going to work or what do we have to decide before we take a leap into this? Because it's very easy to go, well, I've got the money that, you know, that adds up, this adds up. I've got the time or I know the perfect place for this, or this is the perfect timing in history for this, right? Yeah. You know, and I'm going to throw this out there right now because it's hot. CBD oil is the hot thing right now for right. everybody. You've got anybody from a drugstore to a nutrition store to a gas station selling this stuff, you know, so everybody's jumping in on the opportunity. So, I'm looking at this and like, this guy's making money, so why shouldn't I jump in on it, right? Yeah, into the same business or into a business with them. Yeah, so if it's a hot opportunity right now, I guess two questions. Why should I not jump in or how should I vet it if I should go after it? Yeah, I mean, a few of the things that I learned is one is projections, unless it's from a sophisticated business that's, let's say, doing you know more than $10 million in sales are usually pretty – uh, made up, right? So a lot of people are like, oh, this thing in 10 years is going to be worth a billion dollars, right? So at that point in time, $50,000 investment, I mean, that's really chump change. We should we should do it. It's easy to talk yourself into it. Uh, I always try to stay a little bit more with my gut and staying in industry that I know. Um, you know, Common Sold was kind of born because I had built the system for my wife as she was selling clothes to women on Facebook. And now I have way too much, uh, you know, kind of color and distinction around selling clothes on Facebook that I shouldn't. Um, but that's okay. I, I really like having the knowledge, but it, it's interesting. I think that, uh, when an industry becomes hot, I remember this just recently, you know, CBD oil is a good one. Uh, Bitcoin miners were like huge last oh, year yeah. and I sold all my Bitcoin miners to every college kid around the U S that thought that they were going to, you know, run this miner and make money forever. Uh, and I think a lot of times with really big businesses, I always think that, and I think this takes a little bit of a level of humility, <laughs> not, not that I'm calling myself humble, right? because uh, you have to have a certain amount of confidence in this space. But uh, I always think if, if there are other people out there that are really, really sharp at this, they're going to be able to execute it better than me. So how can I get an unfair competitive advantage? So when I'm looking at opportunities, if I'm going to be putting in money or partnering up with someone or going into a new industry, I always think, how can I have some unfair competitive advantage hmm. to set me apart from everybody else? Because if I'm just going to open up a gym and I'm hoping to compete with other people who are running gyms now and probably have a lot more experience, it's really going to be a hard road because they really know what they're doing. Uh, and, and in the comment sold world, it's like, okay, well, we built the software. I think because I built it really with discount divas from you know zero to a million and a half a month in revenue, I was confident that the system could hold up to that kind of growth for a customer. And I was very, very confident in understanding what the customer needed and what they went through, understanding that pain point way better than if I was just developing software, trying to figure something out. Sure. You know, so when I look at other, these other markets, including CBD oil, which I've been pitched on a lot, like I'm sure it's great, uh, but I, I have no unfair advantage that I can give in this space. So I don't want to compete, you know? Absolutely. 
Yeah, and so uh, going with your gut is huge there. And like you said, having some some knowledge or I think interest uh, in the space, you know, I think uh, passion doesn't always have to be there. Like, you know, it's not one of those things where you just had this innate passion to sell women's clothes. I, right? I do not have a passion to sell <laughs> right. women's clothes. But though. but you, you did learn a lot about it. So you had a lot of integral knowledge in the space. And then you also had a passion for helping people to right. grow their businesses and help do that. And that's basically what you're facilitating now on a very high level. It's extremely um, rewarding, you know, being able to help people and no matter what your business is being able to i think the term like delivering value is kind of overused now people message you and say like hey i got this opportunity uh i'm trying to figure out how to deliver lots of value for you i feel like everyone who listens to a tim ferris podcast now says that but um you know that concept of really trying to put yourself in those shoes and think about how you can deliver value uh and think about you know where you have that unfair advantage is super important you know so i really do go with my gut on a lot of those opportunities in the beginning. Um, and, you know, as the, again, as the business matures more, if you're talking about investing in a software company that was worth a hundred million bucks and has all these other big name investors, it's a whole different beast than in the beginning where you're like, I have a concept and I want to run with it. At that point in time, you're really making a bet on the individual and the people and, and how likely you think they will have like them individually. Is that right? how likely they will have uh, a chance to succeed in the space. Well, and I think, so now we're, you're coming from a lot of business experience here, all right? You have a lot under your belt. Um, so you're coming from someone who's very proficient in this space and can see all of the crevices and understand the big picture a lot better, right? Let's talk about somebody who's new. Mm -hmm. Maybe they're starting out for the very first time or maybe they've wanted to start something of their own for a long time yeah. and now they see an opportunity. What, you know, how should they approach that initiative, do you think? Um, intelligently so that they can make this work for them or to know when it's not the right opportunity outside of because they may not have that same gut instinct right because yeah. they're just seeing this is awesome this I finally get to do what maybe I'm passionate about or maybe just so I can finally get to do something of yep. my own you know what's nice about today's world is that you know we're, we're not this in the industrial revolution kind of age anymore right so starting a company almost any type of company or just capitalizing on an idea takes so little money now, right? Oh, like a, a thousand bucks to really like try an idea. I mean, a thousand dollars isn't, it's not that it's, it's not a lot of money, but like to really see if you can bring this dream to reality, it's a small price to pay, right? So, I mean, if you're really starting out, if you can minimize the amount of cash you actually have to outlay or the amount of debt that you might have to bring on. Don't focus on, in the beginning, I think raising money, getting money from a bank, just focus on trying to make it work. You know, with my uh, uh, fourth company, because the first three had failed, the fourth company, Dialmax, had some kind of traction. Our first customer, in a roundabout way, really was our investor, right? Uh, we wanted to sell them phones, we didn't have enough money to buy the phones, but we literally just said like, oh, if you pay us 50%, that's just how we operate. You pay us 50% and then 60 days later, we'll deliver you the phones and you pay us the remaining 50%. Well, the 50% up front is what I needed, that cash I needed to go buy those phones, right? And so I could have thought about it like, I got to go raise money for this thing. I got to go ask a bank for this thing. But I really let my first, very, very first customers, when we had nothing, we had no, there was no technology, there was no business. They essentially funded that because they, they wanted to get a good deal on this product. Um, so I think the biggest advice I would have there is, is take the risk, especially if you don't have to lay out a lot of money. You know, like it's so worth taking the risk because you're going to learn so much regardless of what happens in the companies. You know, like my, I think where I've learned the most uh, and what I've learned the most from are the things that did not go well, right? When you win the state championship in basketball, you're like, 
I'm so good. I'm like freaking LeBron James. It's when you lose that you analyze, like, why did I lose? What went wrong? How did we let this thing get so far away from us? So take the leap uh, is my advice. Uh, I think that a lot of entrepreneurs, there's this thing I do, Urban Engine, I feel like we should work on incorporating this into like a website. Uh, but whenever someone says, I really have an idea, I'm, I'm going to start it, I set a calendar reminder for six months from that date, uh, just on my own calendar. And then I reach out to them. And it's, it's really pretty sad, uh, especially if they're asking for money or something. And they're like, well, you'll see. I'm going to really do this thing. I'm like, great. I want you to do it. You know, like I want all these people to succeed and do well. Uh, six months comes by and like they're in the exact same boat. You know, and I set another reminder a year from that point. So now we're a year and a half away and they're in the exact same boat. They really haven't taken the very first step. They've just talked a lot about it to other people. And I think in a weird roundabout way as humans, we talk to other people as a form of validation. You don't need anyone's validation, especially if you're not spending a whole lot of money or risking your family. Just do it. Yeah, I completely agree. So there's kind of that next step. Like, you know, if it is a low barrier to entry here, obviously you're saying just move forward with it. Just do it. Um, And and let's say it is. But outside of that, okay, they move forward with this initiative. And now they're like, okay, people are supposed to come my way. Like, this is what they told me that this is all I had to do. And now doors are open or switches on, you know, where are the customers at? Right? Like, how do I, how do I now make money? It's supposed to just come my way. That's when the learning really starts, right? Because uh, there's this kind of uh, in the startup world, we use this term runway. How much runway do you have left? And it's basically how much cash do you have left uh, based on how much money you're losing every month before you're running out of cash. And the old adage is true is that you never have enough, right? You never have enough runway because you plan on these things like I'm going to open up the retail store. I'm going to start selling supplements. People are just going to come in. Uh, I'm going to undercut Matt's prices. And I'm sure Matt's had a lot of these people that are no longer in business now uh, because they don't understand really what, again, the act of someone coming in and buying something is the last piece of the puzzle. Getting to that point is so incredibly difficult. Uh, And I think that the projections that you make for yourself of of where you can be on year one, two, and three in the very beginning are just useless. It's like, can you get people in the door in the first week? It's so, so difficult. But what's cool is that that is where the majority of the learnings come from. Uh, you really learn how to drive traffic, how expensive it is, you know, how, and then that is unique in and of itself and valuable. If you can get someone to care about you and your product, that's incredibly unique compared to everybody else. Well, and so you, you mentioned there planning for the forecast, right? Like of the, the things that you're going to do in the business or the projections of the, maybe the sales you're going to make, but you know what you don't plan for is the failures. And so yeah. if you've got, you know, $100,000 for the runway and you've planned $25,000 for these projects, well, you didn't plan for any one of those to fail, did you? You know? Yeah. So if one of those does fail, are one of the other projects going to take off enough to cover for that, you know? Yeah, that cash goes away real quick. Uh, and then you're like, man, I, I really thought that sales would be in a different spot. And it's, it's, a, it's very humble to go through. I've been through it multiple times. Um, but it really makes me respect when something is going well. I think that's also kind of this weird hidden value is when you've been through those failures, you really learn uh, it just sort of inherently to view and understand when things are going well, right? And you know, like, okay, this isn't, I really got something here. It's not an accident. Like I've tried all these other things. Uh, I'm really getting some traction in a, in a weird way. It makes me much more respectful and uh, thankful when things are going well, because I know how hard it can be and how much it can suck. No, oh, yeah, for sure. And Tony, I would love for you to weigh in on some of this stuff here. I see you just kind of smiling. She's in the broken I, chair, so I'm she might not be I'm sitting in the broken yeah. chair, leaning back, just learning and listening. And I wasn't going to interrupt because I was enjoying um, just being able to do that for a little bit. But, um, you know, I think that success is really born from when it is 
when your expectations aren't being met and the um, the person, you know, as you're using the example of the gym owner that's built a gym, Brandon Dean um, comes to mind with Titan Forge, you know, and yeah. so he he has just been relentless. He's going to build that gym. He's going to find the people and um, not just from building it, but going out and forming community and getting people involved and where you're at and how you're able to deal with timelines and things not happening as fast as you think they might whenever you're really excited and whenever you're 150% working on it. It's really those moments where, you know, you thought you were going to have however many customers, uh, you know, per day or per month. Yeah. And then they don't show up, but some do, mm-hmm. right? So it's latching on to the fact that some did, some are there, some are showing up. You just have to go and find more and being able to really just hang in there over time. I mean, Absolute Nutrition wasn't built overnight and neither was Comment Sold. Like you said, it was the longest four years of your life. Yeah. So something that we talk about as ecosystem builders and when people come to talk to us, like you said, about setting that six-month calendar reminder is like, asking people, do, are you going to be feeling the way that you feel about this idea three years from now, the way that you feel now? Are you going to feel stronger or are you going to let it fizzle out? And when it gets hard, you're just not going to hang in there um, and go work for someone. And th- there's nothing wrong with that. But knowing what it takes and preparing yourself mentally to be able to hang yeah. in there is really, I think, what leads to success or failure yeah no I, I really like the way you phrased that that um you know that success is when you're not really making it right or, or that you you feel like there sh- should be something better and i feel like if you're gonna go towards any business idea that you really need to prepare yourself a then what clause right and, and kind of have if it doesn't go this way then what right and and that's where you start to dig in a little deeper and you really find out what you're about you know and what the business is about um, is if you can go find those other customers because none are coming through your door or you're not getting quite enough, right? Or you're not making profit because of the way you structured your sales platform. Your goal yeah. was to undercut Matt and lower your prices, right? Now you're not able to pay your rent because right. you, you don't you didn't have, think about that. You didn't think about that, you know? But that's fine, so then what, you know? And I, and I think that that's important is to understand that, you know, things are never really going to go as planned. Thing, more things are going to fail than you think are. Um, and then maybe also your plan was not a good plan and you didn't realize it until you got into the mix. Right. And how do you react to that too? Says so much about it. Again, one of the things that we look for whenever we're trying to decide whether or not someone should really get coached or be hooked up with a mentor or an investor is, is this person going to be coachable? Do we feel like when they're in that low learning, you know, expectations not being met phase of running the company or starting the business are they going to be able to get coached? Are they going to be able to iterate? Are they going to be able to be humble and say, I opened the doors to my gym. Nobody is coming in here. No one's yeah. buying my supplements. People aren't like onboarding as users. Yep. What's happening? How can I change things? Because I'm going to change things. I'm going to make this thing work. Well, and I think that ability to iterate is really big. Like yeah. that's basically saying you have to have the balls to scrap your idea and start over. Right. right. Yeah. So, you know, I mean, this is kind of interesting, but Twitter was actually started as a podcasting platform. Uh, and people are like, what? Uh, there's all these big companies that were started as something totally different. You know, remember Facebook was started as like, this is going to be for college kids only, right? And then it's like, uh, actually, there's a much bigger opportunity here. I think one of the big lessons there is be willing to uh, pivot and iterate, but also with where the market's going, uh, but also being able to be resilient. And part of that comes from like that cash management and understanding don't go too big in case 
And this is actually one of the most saddening things for me, seeing other entrepreneurs. Uh, let's say in the gym example, like not as many people showed up as they thought, but some did. So it was like, you actually have traction, right? It's like not zero people showed up, more than zero. You have some traction, but because you went too aggressively, you've like accidentally killed the opportunity, right? Yeah. Which is sad. I think that on everyone knows Shark Tank, and I love that Shark Tank's become a thing and that lots of people watch it and, and think about these deals. Um, I feel like the average person on the street could like value a company now, which is pretty cool. <laughs> I think it's awesome. But you know, Kevin always says, I'll crush you like the cockroach that you are, but cockroaches are super resilient, right? Like there's a, a thing out there, I believe that this could be totally be hearsay, but around like if there was a nuclear fallout that all the humans would die, but cockroaches would still be running around. And it's like, I kind of want to be like a cockroach, right? I, I want to be small and nimble, but unkillable. Uh, easily, right? As long as I can dodge the foot. And even if you hit me with a foot, if you don't separate the head from the thorax, as Dwight from the office says, then I'll just keep running along even if, after you crush me, right? And there's there's something so beautiful about that in kind of a weird sort of way. Yeah, <laughs> that, yeah uh, and I'll be not sleeping tonight yeah, thinking sorry about, about how that. beautiful yeah, yeah. it is. I'm, I am so, I apologize to all the, the children listening to the podcast <laughs> uh, and their parents for their nightmares. But, you know, the idea of being able to have longevity and resilience is I think a huge piece of the puzzle is like you can't win at the game if you're not in the game, you know? So I think one of the first sort of like uh, goals should be how do I make sure I can always stay in the game? And that's why I really tell or I encourage people to stay at their job and try something, you know, just because once you make that switch, you, then like the stopwatch starts. It's like, okay, I have X amount of time before I have to go back to a job or before I have to do something different and potentially even, you know, harm an opportunity that actually has legs to run because you need to do that. Well, you know, I think the way you kind of phrase the game there brings about an interesting analogy in my mind of baseball. You know, there's going to be very few Hall of Famers over time, right? And the same thing in the business world. There's not going to be that many Hall of Famers, but like how long can you stay in the game? How much, you know, like how formidable of a player can you be in this space? Because that is going to be the difference in thinking that you're going to make this thing happen in three to, you know, three or four years here or whatever, or still being able to play the game in 10 years because you know how to play the game well, right? Okay, so and I need to be devil's advocate to that example, though. Okay. I'll let you finish what you're going to say before I do. No, you go ahead. I think that there's so much more of an opportunity through entrepreneurship to create wealth or have a career that people just don't even realize like it's almost a secret that some people until recently I would say even the last 10 years were willing to talk about almost yeah. because it was like don't tell everyone or they'll figure it out like you know the other day to give you an example I was driving just around like to get some headspace back and saw an old rundown car wash place <laughs> off the side of the road that was still operating but I was thinking to myself I wonder how much the person that owns that land and also like has that business is making passively every single yeah. year just by having it but I only think about things that way because of being surrounded by the people who see opportunities and things like that now so baseball is a good example but like even just to get to a point where you're making money off of it you have to be so good and you have to be born with a natural talent whereas like anybody that would be able to accumulate a certain amount of wealth to invest in an old broken down car wash on the side of the road could be doing something long term just by understanding processes and opportunities yeah sure that well, person isn't going to be in the hall of fame for being an entrepreneur right. but like that could be something that is a generational or legacy thing well, there's an interesting book uh called the millionaire next door which talks a lot about that right there's all these people that you would never expect to have net worth in the one plus you know multi-millions um that aren't like these uh, hall of famer entrepreneurs and i think we're in an unparalleled time in history 
uh, over the last you know 10 years or so, but even over the last year, and we talked about this a little bit last time in, in private equity and some of the money on the sidelines that's willing to buy businesses uh, like Discount Divas, which may not have had a suitor 10 years ago, just because they want to buy operating businesses that are making money uh, and pay you know 10 years worth of your next profit to try to get there. And it's, it's just amazing that there's all these wins that wouldn't necessarily be in Entrepreneur Magazine that have, have made this generational wealth. Uh, and I know this happens in Huntsville that you just never hear about. So to me, that's like, it's pretty cool because it lowers the bar. It's like, okay, uh, in a good way. Like, I don't have to be Mark Zuckerberg. And I, th- I actually think trying to go for that type of win really discourages a, a solid double, you know what I mean? That is like literally life-changing to an individual because they're trying to go for the billion-dollar exit or something. Because that's a totally different business than just having something that is really successful, sustainable. Uh, and I think those people, the car wash person in particular, uh, is an entrepreneur just like any other. They took risk, uh, and they have to operate that that business. They have to decide what uh, amount to invest back into the business to have a return on it. And I think it's so cool that that opportunity is given, it is more available to uh, people in the U.S. than has ever been in the history of time. Yeah. Well, and I think my example was more meant not to just that that big win mentality, but uh, the things that, you know, you're, you're, you're probably not going to get into this business and be a multimillionaire right now, right? Maybe you just make really good money for a long time because of the way that you do operate that business. But at the end of the day, much like in baseball, who's going to pick you for their team is what I'm really getting at. And that's both from a customer standpoint as well as other opportunities. Is that next opportunity going to pick you as the right person? Yeah, totally. um, because of the skill sets that you keep honing and, and keep warm, that you're still able to play the game. And that's kind of what I mean by that there, because very few are going to be that home run king that knocks it out of the park time and time again, and they meet that Hall of Fame status, even if they're not inducted to the Hall of Fame, yeah. right? They're that killer player. Everybody knows they made the big contracts, and then you're gone, right? And, and very well, that may happen to you, but the, it's very few and far between. But knowing how to play the game and being able to play it for 20 years, I bet you there's tons of baseball players none of us could even name. Oh, yeah. It might be even more rich than the, the, the bigger known guys because they played for so long. Yeah, you know, and that and that's the thing that I think a lot of other people underestimate is how long can you play the game, or do you want to play the game? And then also keeping those skill sets sharp or building on them over time, so that that next opportunity when it comes calling, it picks you for its team. Yeah, yeah, we talk about a lot of times where people are like, oh, I'm going to be out of this thing in two years from now, and it's like, well, if you want to be out of the business so bad because it sucks so bad or it's wearing on you, why would anyone want to pay lots of money for that, right? <laughs> they want, uh, in general, right? People want businesses that have some competitive advantage to where they it can operate without you. And, and I think that's that's kind of another good book, Built to Sell, uh, which, which Ma and I were just talking about um, last week, uh, really about building a business that doesn't require you to operate is you know valuable, even if you never have that intention to, to go and sell. Just being in the game is the hard part. Having that gym and being able to uh, pivot, not necessarily even pivot business models or whatever people want to say, but just pivot to say like, okay, well, a fourth of the people that I expected to show up actually showed up. How can I keep growing this and stay in business and try to make this work. And that is a very, very tough pursuit. And I have a lot of respect for people that go through that. And I really think that's one of the signs of a true entrepreneur because you've been through the crap. And just like when people look at businesses and say, oh, uh, this gym has lots of people coming in every day. I can calculate how much money they're doing. And it, it's, it's almost like when, when someone gives me a projection and they say, okay, we're going to do 10 million in revenue this year. And this is how much money we're going to make. I'm like, I fully believe that you're, if you get your 10 million hypothetical dollars, that you're going to make a hypothetical pro- like profit, right? But it's really hard to drive that top line number 
Um, it's easy to go into a business and start cutting costs to save money where a business owner might have had some oversight. It's really hard to take that 10 million and turn it to 20, you know what I mean? Or that 50,000 revenue and turn it to 100. Uh, that is, I think, really the sign of the, the real entrepreneurs out there. And and I should say that like anyone can be a quote real entrepreneur. I, I just mean that I think that's a very good trait for an entrepreneur to have. So I have a question for both of you. Um, just getting back to the beginning of the conversation and what we were talking a bit about with traction and finding customers, and you know you can't just build it um, to expect that customers will come. Once you you know start to see some traction, so like Matt, you've over the years offered a lot of new products and different product lines within Absolute Nutrition and then your apparel lab too, right? And then Brandon, you've built multiple companies where you've had to find niche customers for them. So it didn't happen overnight though. So how did no. you take those first early adopters when you started to pick up some traction and really grow it from that base? What, what did you look for? What questions did you ask? How did you test it? What are some tactical tips that uh, you could offer? You know, I would say that I began my first business as one of my own customers in a way, you know, where I didn't build the business to cater to me specifically, but I was in the industry, and so I kind of built that to solve a problem that I was already facing, right? I was trying to find sports nutrition products at a, you know, a reasonable price locally, and there was no opportunities to do that. Um, and then as I got further into the marketplace, realized that there was a lot more opportunity there to specialize in better quality products as well because everybody was just settling for what they saw or heard about in the magazines you know and and that's where we kind of grew that thing and so you know it started very much in the beginning as being a personal problem that I solved and then also found a lot of other people that had the same problem or interest in that niche right and so then I just continued to solve those problems and, and more or less my own hustle was a lot of the early days on getting customers right um, and trying to continue to do that and then eventually you know, the name started to be a trickle effect through the people um, and getting that referral base on it. And, and kind of the, the similar thing with my second business, which were, it was one of those things where I love comfortable t-shirts and I always wanted to produce t-shirts for Absolute. I always joke, people, joke with people about like the first two years I was in business, I didn't even have a shirt because I couldn't make a decision on it, you know? <laughs> I couldn't decide what color, like what, what kind of shirts I wanted them to be, like how I wanted to do my logo on there. And there was like all these decisions because it was very complicated and like nobody was giving me any good feedback when I talked to these printers. I'm like, this is what I want to do. I'm thinking about this or this. And they wouldn't be like, yeah, man, I think you should try this. They'd be like, yeah, whatever you want to do. And it's like, well, crap, like that doesn't help me at all. So I didn't have t-shirts for a long time, which is ridiculous, especially since I now own a t-shirt business and encourage people to do that all the time. But we part of getting into the t-shirt business was helping people, guide, guiding people to the right options for them or that I feel like are great options for their customers. And so you help kind of cut through the weeds there and help them find a good solution and get moving rather than staying still. And so Helping people move along in decisions, I guess, has also been part of my skill set through both businesses is because people want to have their hands held a little bit or need to have their hands held. And so you need to understand what it takes to hold their hand and guide them to an effective solution at the end of the day. And that's all we keep doing is guiding people to effective solutions in both companies. And, and that's been how we grew our business was continuing to do that and, and build a good rapport. So just from what I know, uh, like I wanted to ask this question. So at one point you had Absolute Nutrition built to a certain point with a certain amount of revenue just based off of selling supplements at what point were you like people need their hand held through the meal 
selection process too like the actual to do now you have like on-demand like ready-made meals through I forget what you call it I'm sorry but you know what I mean like it's more than just like making sure they have the right protein shake it's also making sure that they have the right breakfast lunch and dinner that's prepared for them so interestingly enough that was always an idea since day one but that idea evolved and has changed multiple times over the years too because earlier on when I was in more of the bodybuilding realm and everybody was caring about staying two percent body fat or as low as they wanted to be you know, food meant a whole different thing. It was just fuel and it was a means and it was, you know, trying to be the leanest, most, you know, gain the most muscle, whatever, you know, and that perspective shifted over time as we look at what do people really need? Do they really need bodybuilder food or do they really need good, healthy meals that they can find that taste good? Because that's what they're going to stick with. Dieting is one of the hardest things I've ever done in my life. Like 14 weeks of dieting with seven basic, basically seven foods every single day was the worst. It took away everything that you enjoy in life. Think about <laughs> all the dinners with friends, the ice cream with family, all of those things. Now strip it all away. Like it just really takes the luster out of life. I actually think I'm fun. okay with it. Like I think I could do it right now. Okay, good luck. I <laughs> challenge you. I challenge you to do it. And let's talk after about uh, 10 or 10 weeks or so. Let's see how you're feeling because it'll make you a crazy person. Okay. But it, it is very tough. And it's one of those things, that, like I said, it kind of strips the fun out of it. So what I've realized over time and working with different companies and meals and, and customers is that they need variety, they need flavor, and they need healthy. They don't need the 1% meal, right, for the people that are, that are doing this niche bodybuilding thing. Everybody's not a bodybuilder, right? Yeah. They don't need that stripped down food of every single piece of fat or extra carb and this and that. A little bit of sugar is not going to kill anybody, right? Moderating those things is important. Getting them enough food is very important because so many people undereat as it is. So trying to find that sweet spot is very, very tough. This is, I think, our fourth company we've worked with over time yeah. for meals. Um, and it's a buddy out of Birmingham who also owns nutrition stores. I've known him since college. And he started this meal company with a restaurant owner up there that both are in the space and wanted better food options for people on the go. And so it kind of even changed my perspective on what we're providing for customers because they're like, man, people don't want this. People want pizza. They want this and that. And so while the pizza is a healthier option with cauliflower crust, people rave about how good it is and that they can eat pizza. And at the end of the day, I never would have chosen that out of a hat, right? Mm -hmm. Or just if you'd given me choices, wouldn't have, wouldn't have done it. Mm -hmm. And so having, having that feedback from people and, and being open to learning as you go to because your idea is liable to be wrong um, is I think very important um, and, and to continue to understand you know the customer changes and also your focus on the customer probably changes my market segment in 2010 was way different than it is in 2019 mm -hmm. and so I think that understanding what people want now uh, you, you have to go with that shift and you have to understand why they need it and not not always just force your ideals on people there's certain ideals and, and things that are uh, integral to me and the business that I will never shift from and there's other things that are Matt's idea that don't need to be forced on other people, right? I need to learn what they need or what they, you know, and again, that's finding, helping them find good solutions, mm -hmm. right? So it's, it's an interesting toss up there and kind of a mix between knowing good solutions and, and helping them to understand it and educating the customer and then also listening to their needs and mm -hmm. following that path. Yeah. How about you, Brandon? I think I, I really, I kind of said this for a while and I consider myself kind of a product person now. Uh, and all that really means is that I try to really stay in touch with uh, the customer. And, and this really, I think, transcends any kind of industry or vertical that you're in. But really, truly being obsessed with the customer and the pain. I've seen so many people. It's so easy, like, once you get some traction to really get away from what got you there. And because it's, it's a little bit harder to scale once you have more customers, you have more voices. As an entrepreneur, you have to be able to discern sort of the signal to noise. 
Um, and if you don't listen to them, a lot of times they'll try to come up with solutions or for solutions, which sometimes might not be the best, but really obsessing over their pain so that you can come up with a good solution. Cause, cause that's what you've done to start the business anyways. Like you are solving some need for somebody, no matter what business you're doing. So you already are, I think you're on the right step, the right foot forward, right? You're like, okay, I really understand this, this problem well, and I'm helping this customer, like with the t-shirts, making the decisions because you've been through it before. Now, it would be, I think, foolish now that Matt has traction in Apparel Lab to walk away from the customer voice, right? It's like, that's what, I mean, he was the customer in the beginning. And he's got a lot of iterative feedback from then. And I see that happen a lot of times. It always seems a little bit strange to me. And I'm not sure why people do it, but I obsess about it. Like as Comments Hold grows, I just continue to get more and more feedback. Uh, and, can, and that even helps as you grow, getting feedback from more and more people of different walks of life with different perspective and really trying to, and I find myself doing this a lot, not asking them for the solution, which you, I think you can do sometimes, but it's really like understanding what is the pain that's driving them for the most part. And that is a very, very tricky part uh, of entrepreneurship is the, the signal to noise. So for the people that showed up at the gym, a fourth of the people showed up that you expected, but you still had a fourth of the people. Like, why did they show up, right? What, what's, what are you providing them? Is it just because they're your friend and they want to be supportive? I mean, because that's good. That, that's something that is, is helpful. It's good to know that it wasn't the you know $18,000 machine that you bought. It was actually just because they wanted to be supportive. So maybe you shouldn't go buy more $18,000 machines now. So I try to, for myself, try to stay really close to that voice. And as comments hold grows and in any company, it becomes, I think, harder to do that. And you have to really implement process. Like we have a customer advisory sort of board you know, which is essentially just a handful of customers at different sizes and segments of comments sold that can help us, help me uh, in driving the product direction, give that feedback because many of the best features that have come out of comments sold were not our ideas. You know, it was a really understanding the pain of the customer. They're like, you know, this is great, things are going well, but I'm actually having trouble selling through a lot of this older inventory. Oh, okay, well, how about if we, and it's like, well, what do you do about that now? Well, right now I go through all my old inventory every week and I schedule out when I'm going to try to sell it again to all my customers. I'm like, well, how do you base, how do you figure that out? Well, I just find the oldest stuff that I still have a good amount of pieces left, like at least 10. And so they already have all these rules in their head that they might not even realize. I'm like, okay, what about if the system could find your oldest inventory every Sunday night and it could schedule out for the whole week, you know, to post to your customers. It will base it on uh, it's at least been two weeks since they posted it the last time. And it has at least 10 pieces of inventory so you don't kind of waste a post. Like, that's great. Yeah, that's what I do today. And it saved them a lot of time. They have a lot of perceived value. I never would have come to anything close to that solution because we're just too far away from that pain on a day-to-day -day basis. But these people are, you know, the people coming to the gym, they are living the value proposition, right? They are the best people to talk to about this. So I think that there's sometimes maybe a, a, a misconception where people are like, I'm too scared because I hear about customers suggesting something and then an uh, entrepreneur doing that and it not working out, that's, that's the entrepreneur's fault, not the customer's fault, right? The customer's only job in that case, or it's not even their job, it's, it's very nice of them to do, is provide that feedback and give their perspective on their pain so that you can have uh, that information and make more informed decisions. Uh, it, it's, it's, like, it's kind of crazy how uh, something, a decision of mine that might be really kind of uh, sort of uh, hairy and I can't quite figure out which way to go. And then you talk to all these customers and it's like, well, now the decision's obvious, right? I don't even have to make a smart strategic decision. It's almost already done for me, which is a really a cool place to be. That's awesome. Thanks for sharing that. Yeah, I mean, it's, uh, it, it's a lot of fun to be able to, to stay close to that. It's also extremely rewarding. You know, and again, in the gym example, because I think we've been kind of using that one, you see someone 
having that perceived value. And in, in the comment sold world, you see people growing their business and getting excited about it. It's extremely rewarding. I mean, I think that's one of the, the most rewarding things you can do in life. Uh, but I think, you know, you, you do a very good job of staying close to that customer voice um, because you've got how many boutiques now in Comet sold? Like 12,000. So 12,000 oh people God. to stay that close to their voice. I said 5,000 the other day. I was like, I'm pretty sure you guys like 5,000. It was 5,000. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Just the so, other I mean, day, just, I'm sure. To stay close to 12,000 people and hear their voice is difficult, right? I mean, it's and hard. so again, like he said, that signal to noise ratio of what's important, he has to really tune in and be able to sift through and find out what are the major pain points here. But, you know, to your point earlier, your question rather of like, I don't understand why people get away from ever listening to what got them there in the first place. You know, I can think of a lot of reasons, and, and one of them would be like their roles and responsibilities change a little bit as the organization grows. Yeah. And so they do, they kind of get forced away from it, and they forget that that's what got them there. Yeah. And I, I can see in the in my future, particularly in Common Sold, uh, it, there will be a day in which I will not be CEO of Common Sold, and I'll just be focused on product. You know, just because. Uh, I really do think that that's one of the most important pieces is continuing to deliver value. All the stuff about the organizational structures and how these teams are managed and like leading people, it's all secondary to having customers that love your product, yeah. right? Otherwise, like none of that other stuff matters. We're just here hanging out. For you sure. Know what I mean? Yeah. And I think, you know, it, it, one of the, when I used to work for Best Buy back in the day, one of my major complaints on the sales floor was that management didn't get it. They didn't know what was happening on the sales floor. They had they set these expectations or wanted you to do these things, but they weren't the ones talking with the customers every day like I was. And I always told myself that if I ever had my own company, I would never forget what it's like to be on the ground floor. <laughs> and now good. I haven't completely held to that. Like there has been times where I have forgotten that, right? But I will tell you that 10 years in, I still clean the toilets on occasion. You know what yeah. I mean? And I think it's important to have that ground level feedback um, both from operational standpoint and especially from your customer standpoint, like you mentioned, because yeah. it, it is easy to stray as something as your business changes and you grow and you have different responsibilities. But well, I hear people say a, a lot about uh, just mentioned that before. I'm worried about the uh, you know listening to the customer and getting the wrong feedback. One thing that I've also learned is that uh, that's kind of interesting from the from the lean startup world, and it's definitely been validated in my life a couple times, is that if there's a great feature idea or a huge bug that really is bothering people you don't necessarily even have to worry about like, oh, write this thing down so that we don't forget about it because it will constantly come up all the time. You know, like we really delayed on doing that inventory solution because we were so focused on, you know, just other features that we had planned. And it was like every customer we talked to, oh, common sold's great, things are going great, but I have all this old inventory, right? And it's like, uh, it will always stay on the top of funnel as a pain point for people. So, you know, you don't necessarily have to worry about like, oh, this, oh, this one idea I had and I forgot it and it's gone forever and that could have been the billion dollar idea. It's like, that never happens. Yeah, you know? for sure. All right, guys. Well, uh, I hope if you've been listening, you got some value out of this, uh, even though we talked about value being overused. <laughs> uh, but there were a lot, a lot of great nuggets in here uh, from Brandon, especially. I'm um, kind of the insight on whether you, you should pursue that idea um, and the fact that if you build it, they won't just come. So you, you better think about those things a little bit more intelligently, really focus on those gut decisions um, and, and, and make sure that if you are going forward with something that you are willing to, to change and iterate and let things evolve and change um, while keeping a listen to your customers uh, for that true north as you do so. So, guys, it's been awesome. Thank you again for joining us on the podcast, man. I appreciate it. Of course. Tony, always great. <laughs> Talk to you guys next time. Right. Yeah. Bye, guys. <laughs>